I'm always surprised at, at some of the abilities that human beings have. And, and one of the things that kind of surprises me from time to time is to realize, and you've noticed this, I'm sure, that, that you can identify someone before you can recognize their face if you know them by the way that they walk. Did you ever notice that? You, you know, you can see someone far off and you can't quite tell from their dress who they might be, but, but you can know, you watch the way they walk. And you can see, well, that's the way this guy walks all the time. I know who it is. I can't see his face. I can't identify the details, but I can see by the way he walks, I know who that is. And I think that's maybe what Paul had in mind when he was talking to the Ephesians, writing to this young church and saying, watch how you walk. Because other people are reading you. Other people are watching you. Other people are looking and they're measuring who you are. They're identifying you by your walk. By the way that you travel through life one step at a time. And that's the theme that we began last week. Walk worthy. It's interesting that that's the same passage, one of the same passages that Jose is talking about today. And he's talking about walking worthy to the men. And Paul continues this theme now in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, about how we walk, how we live before one another and before a watching world. And so we look back into this passage. It's been read for us already. Uh, notice that Ephesians chapter 5 begins with the word, therefore. Whenever you see that word, therefore, you know you should find out what it's there for. And Paul, again, is referring back to what has come before and multiple times he's used this word. In verse 25 of chapter 4, he used therefore, because you have a new life in Christ. Therefore, put away falsehood, put away lying. And now in, in chapter 5, therefore, because of the way we should live. And he, he ended chapter 4, what we call chapter 4 with verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Because God and Christ forgave you, be imitators of God. That's the therefore. That's why Paul did that, to continue that on. So this conversation, the discussion we began last week, is actually continuing with the theme of walking. How we walk together. And Paul picks this up in verse 2 of chapter 5 and says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love is the first reminder here. And last week you saw that I, I had this walking stick that was my dad's, and, and um, it's a reminder to me about how we walk. How do I walk day by day? I feel a special responsibility when I have this stick in my hand, as ugly as the thing is, uh, because my father held this in his hands. And my father, in days of weakness, walked with this. And it was with him all the time. And it would have become part of the way that if I was looking for my father in a long ways off, I would have been able to identify him. Because he walked with a cane for a while. So how do you walk? Well, Paul's saying, as a Christian, as a child of God, if you are one of God's children today, and that's the context of this whole discussion, walk in love. Walk in love. And walking in love is the, is the way that Paul begins this discussion or continues this, the discussion of how we walk. Why should we walk in love? Well, we should walk in love because we are imitating God. 
because we're living by new rules, because we are saints, because we are set apart to God, and all of that is in these first two verses of this chapter. Walk in love as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us. The same way, sacrificial love. That's how you walk. That's how you walk in love. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So why should you walk in love? Well, you are God's child. You are God's beloved child. You are the one that is in his eye. He loves you deeply. You should walk in love because God loves you. He is, you are his beloved child. Parents here today, you know, you, you know the feeling. You know how your children are beloved to you and how you will stand for them and you will defend them and you will do what you can for them uh, because they are yours. They're your beloved children. And they are the ones that you will sacrifice anything for. And that's the picture here that Paul is using, saying you should walk in love. You are God's beloved child. Walking in love is a sacrificial walk. It is not something that you do without giving up something. There is a cost to it. Whenever you walk in love, you always are sacrificing something. Parents know this very much. Uh, In the early days of a child's life, you sacrifice sleep by the day. And you do it because you love that child, because you will do that willingly for the well-being of that child. Jesus, of course, is the example that Paul uses, as Christ loved us. How do you walk in love? As Christ loved us. And what was the way that he loved you? He gave himself up. He gave himself up to the point of death. He held back absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing was held back. And in doing that, that's the standard by which you and I measure our love. Do you hold back anything in loving? What do you hold back? Christ held back nothing. He went to the point of the cross. He showed the example. And Jesus never asks you to do something that he has not done before. He's never asked you to go where he's not gone before you. And it says that he gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, to those among the Ephesians who were Jews and had trusted in Christ, this was an obvious answer to them, but also to the pagans among them. They understood this idea of sacrifice. There were sacrifices going on uh, that in the pagan temples there, and there were sacrifices, bird offerings being given up to false gods. And so they understood the picture here. And they understood the smell, the aroma that accompanied that. Uh, they say that one of the strongest uh, senses that you have to cue your memory, to tie your association with other places, is your sense of smell. In fact, the other day I was listening, I was driving home and listening on the radio, and they were doing a brain test. They were doing mental gymnastics, they said. And one of the things was they described uh, a smell. And and I've also read that if you want to sell your house, for instance, uh, bake some fresh bread just before you show it. And it makes the house feel warm to everybody. It makes makes it feel like a welcoming place. Because why? We associate the aroma of fresh baked bread with home. And so you want someone thinking of buying a home to buying your house that you're selling. You want them to think of this place as their home. And so there's this strong connection between the sense of smell 
and between uh, the thoughts and memories that we have built into our mind. And so Paul was building on that and he was saying that uh, Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. King James Version uh, translates this sacrifice to God as a ransom, a fragrant ransom and and sacrifice to God. That's an interesting concept because the purpose for which Christ gave up his life is to buy you back from slavery. Now, there are six behaviors then that Paul begins to list, starting in verse 3, that are incompatible with the Christian life. They just don't work together. It's not part of God's picture. It's not part of God's intention. It's not what he would have for you. And there are six things that he begins to list out here. And he says, but. So we had therefore starting out verse 1. And now in verse 3 we have but. Here's a contrast. But is one of those contrast words. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Paul is drawing a new picture for us. And he's saying that the old rules don't work anymore. The old rules said you do what felt good. You do what you wanted to do. You, did, you do what pleased you. And if it hurt people, oh well, that's kind of the price of being you. The new rules are different. The new rules say that there are boundaries on how we live. And these boundaries are placed there by God for our well-being, for the well-being of those around us, those that come in contact with us. All of this is there by God's decision. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. It shouldn't even be something that is part of the discussion. These first sins mentioned are sins of unchecked desire. Unchecked desire. It's what I want to do, and so I do it. Sexual immorality and impurity. Sexual immorality is given uh, is kind of a broad context here, a broad topic. Immorality and impurity include things like fornication, which is a word we don't use much anymore. Uh, the Bible uses it. It's a definitive word. It's talking about sexual relationships outside of marriage. This seems to be the accepted standard for our day. This seems to be the one rule that is everyone says, well, everyone's doing that. And Paul's saying, no, it's not in the rule book for the Christian life. It's not part of who you are. It doesn't matter if all of society is doing this. And remember, he was writing to the Ephesian society, to the Ephesian church, and they understood this. Their society was like ours is becoming. So they understood that. Another context, another def, def, de, definition that falls under sexual immorality is adultery. Uh, these are sexual relationships when one partner is married. Uh, this also does not raise any eyebrows today any longer. Uh, really, there's talk about people who, uh, among people, about having two, three, four marriages, and it's, that's not unusual. It's just life, you know, it's how I develop, as some people would say. And Paul is saying no. It's not in the rule book for those who are God's children. We play by a different set of rules. And God takes marriage very seriously. And unfaithfulness within marriage breaks the vows and breaks hearts and and, uh, defies God. The third unchecked desire that Paul names here is covetousness. Kind of an old-fashioned word again, covetousness. We don't talk about being covetous much anymore. Uh, Actually, Uh, We don't talk about it by that name, but we live by it. 
in a lot of ways. Um, this is a warning that we, covetousness is wanting what is not yours. Whether it is possessions, whether it is a position, whether it is relationships, and the covetousness is a very broad word. It doesn't only apply to, I see you have that new car in your driveway and I want one. Actually, I want that car. Uh, that's kind of the way covetousness works. Someone shows you something that they have, and <clears throat> instead of celebrating with them, your first thought is, why don't I have that? And if that's your first thought when someone shows you something, something that they've received or they worked hard to purchase, and your first thought is, well, why don't I have that? Then you've got a covetous heart. Now, it's not as obvious. Covetousness is not as obvious as sexual sin. There's, you know, the other victim isn't always there. But it's just as real in the way that it works in our lives. It's just as lively. The Tenth Commandment, the last commandment, says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, nor ultimately anything that is your neighbor's. So you look out the window and you say, well, they have that, why don't I have that? <clears throat> and there's a problem in your heart right away. This is one of those hidden things. <clears throat> Covetousness is, is kind of like the, the topic of, of greed. We, we, we don't talk about that a lot. Or gluttony. We don't talk about that a lot in the, in the church even. And covetousness is there in our hearts. And Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Later on, he says that that's idolatry. Um, that, that's verse 5. He defines it. He says, you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater. Now, <clears throat> any person that you said, if you were to say to them that your, your covetousness is idolatry, they would say, what are you talking about? I don't bow down to images, really. You don't have these images in your mind. You, you've got the, the iPod you have to have or the iPhone or whatever it might be, the i whatever. Uh, everything's got an I in the beginning of it now, it seems. Uh, but so does idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Um, Paul says that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry has to do with the condition of the heart in relationship to God. It's a worship thing. Paul says if you are a covetous person, you have a worship problem. And your worship problem is that, that uh, you have something else in your heart that takes the place of God. There's something else that you are striving for, something else that you are living for that rivals the place of God in your heart. And Paul says that should not even be named among you. It's preferring something over God. Now, that's a broad topic. What is it you prefer over God? So along with sexual immorality, covetousness is a refusal to control an appetite. It's a desire. It's the pursuit of something. Um, both of them, both immorality and covetousness, presume to take what is not theirs, something that does not belong to them. Now, he turns the attention now to three other things that are not in the Christian rule book, and these are sins of the tongue and of the heart. And so he begins now to look in verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Sins of the tongue and of the heart. Um, filthiness is a mind preoccupied with perverse, obscene, uh, dirty things. 
uh, we would say that this is this is the kind of the mentality that whenever you're talking to a person whose mind is occupied uh, in this way, everything turns into a, some kind of little double meaning. You know, there are no direct statements. Everything says, well, it could be this or it could be that. You know, what's he talking about really? Is there another meaning behind what this person is saying? And of course, this kind of speech comes out of the heart. It's what's on the inside that ultimately is revealed. And so a mind preoccupied with perverse or obscene things is a filthy mind. It's a mind that is not, um, not open to the things of God. I heard a, a statement, one of the speakers this weekend said something on, on Friday night, and it just kind of stood with me. I think this was a quote from Chuck Swindoll. He said, The secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. I like that. We think that we got away with it. We think, who knows that? Secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. It's revealed. The book of your heart is available to God. He reads it. He knows it. And that's a sobering, sobering thought. And there's not one of us that doesn't wrestle with these things in some degree. Let's be honest about this. We, we may not be out committing sexual immorality, but there is the thought life that goes on and the things that we are exposed to uh, constantly in our life. And so the sins of the tongue and of the heart are things that we need to be warned about. And foolish talk is, is the next thing. Foolish talk, well, boy, that's a broad topic, isn't it? This is not a condemnation of small talk of being friendly. You know, you meet someone, you don't have a lot to say, you don't have a lot in common, but you talk about things. How's the weather? Uh, you know, what, where do you come from? What's your job like? That's not what this is about. It's not talking about um, that as foolish talk, even though that might be, not be significant talk, it is not what he's talking about. This kind of foolish talk has a moral quality to it. It is a senseless conversation that is the pursuit of topics that have no good purpose. Uh, they are topics that undermine faith, that undermine mor moral behavior, that undermine the life that God would have us to live. And so this is the kind of foolish talk. Um, we are surrounded by foolish talk, and we very often are tempted to enter into it, it seems. There are books written by the ton, and some books that are written, many books that are written, are just foolish talk, just conversation that undermines what people believe, undermines uh, moral character, and they get money for writing books that undermine who we are. So, foolish talk. The kind of talk that undermines people's thinking, undermines people's, people's faith. That's what Paul has in mind. Uh, the third category here is crude joking. Uh, crude joking seems to be something that... Uh, we used to be protected from, in many ways, in at least public performances, but that is no longer the case, as there's fierce competition for money and the attention of people. Much of what used to be considered safe territory, in the broadcast media at least, uh, is always undermined. Crude joking is all around us, and Paul says that you ought not to enter, enter into that. That ought not to be part of your lifestyle. I know, you stand around at work and, and you talk and the guys get together and talk and, and there's always this temptation to go in a certain direction with discussion and conversation. And I would hope that in your mind, as you consider 
where you are at that moment and you consider that the world is watching how you walk and as the conversation begins to turn you have to make some choices you can walk away you can decide I'm not going to participate in this or you can join in or you can stand there silently and smile really kind of giving approval but not giving outright approval but not standing against it either Paul says that these kind of things as God's people gather should never be a part of it this crude joking um, Jesus said again this is coming out of the heart In Matthew 7 he said so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit Jesus said that that's kind of the heart being read the kind of entertainment you give to one another in private is how you are read Paul also reminds us in Romans do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect so Paul says these three things these last three things are not to be named among us there should not be uh, this kind of filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place but instead he says let me give you a suggestion be thankful did you ever notice how hard it is to be thankful uh, usually we can always find an abundance of topics to complain about and it's really easy in fact you start talking about something and and right away you think oh, that that doesn't work well does it you know that, or this is broken or whatever it is it's easy to go in that direction but it's very difficult to go in the direction of Thanksgiving you have to make a choice and grab a hold of your mind and point yourself in that direction Paul says, you want to go in a direction with your conversation? Be thankful. What are you thankful about? What are you thankful about? Uh, yesterday when Jose was hurt, uh, thrown from a horse, and I was sitting with him in, at the doctor's office for several hours as we were waiting, uh, being, as he was being treated, and he was playing this over in his mind. You know, what, what happened? How did it happen? Well, it seems that it was very windy and gusty, and the wind spooked the horse is what happened. And, uh, and he said, well, I could have gotten off, or I should have, you know, this and what, whatever. And then he began to think about after he fell and what happened. And apparently the horse reared up, threw him off, and he on the ground saw the horse losing his balance and coming toward him. And he rolled out of the way quickly. And his thought process began to think, wow, I'm so thankful that I rolled out of the way. The horse landed this far from me. He kept saying, it was this far from me. And, you know, having a horse land on you is like a car being dropped on you. And the injuries he had would have been far worse. And so he began the whole trip home yesterday. He was thankful. I'm so thankful that God protected him. It protected me, he kept saying. And he told his wife when he got home, he told Millie, I'm so thankful. So here it is. You know, the, the temptation is to go in a certain direction and getting angry or whatever about what, what thing, things that happen in our life. And, and you grab a hold of it and you say, but you know what? You know what? There's something to be thankful for. Uh, this might be a problem, but there's something to be thankful for. And so Paul says, grab a hold of your life. Grab a hold of your conversation. Turn it in a direction. And then in verse 5, he says something that might trouble some people. He says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Now, this no inheritance thing, you, you think, whoa. Wait a minute. Does that mean me? Does that mean I, 
because I was such a person that I have no inheritance? What's the point of being a believer? And I want to be clear about what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that if you have committed those sins, if that was part of your lifestyle, that you can never go to heaven. Because then that would be a a works-based salvation and Christ died for our sins. He died to pay the penalty of our sins. You are washed, as Paul reminded the Corinthians. You've been washed. You're not what you were. You've been made a new creation. And God started over in your life. He washed all of those things that were part of who you were. So he's not saying that if that's who you were, because frankly, I think heaven would be empty if that's what he was saying. But he's saying that if a person persists in these things, in sexual sin, in the thought processes that are corrupt, in idolatry, even when warned, then he's saying there's no evidence of salvation. There's no evidence. If if you think the way you thought before you came to Christ, what's the difference? What's the difference? And the point is that there is a difference. You are not what you were. And John wrote in 1 John, he said that no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So he's talking about the habits of your life. And he's saying of a person, if a person continues to persist in sin... And even when confronted, and that person says they are a child of God, and they, their mouth is, is like a sewer, you know, and, and they just they swear all the time, and they just there's no change in their thought processes. If there's no change, then you have to question what's happened in the heart, because it's the heart, it's out of the overflow of the heart that our conversation and our, our thought processes and our actions come. Paul reminds them that there's evidence of being a child of God. And if that evidence is not there, then you should seriously question whether you have ever been born again. Because God is at work. We know, for example, in the Old Testament that David committed adultery. He repented and he was forgiven. And God speaks highly of him in other places throughout Scripture. And it was because he saw his sin, the character of God was revealed in him, and God made... Uh, changes in David's life and David was uh, continued to walk with God you should not waste your life with empty words and neither should you be deceived by them and verse 6 says let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things and this is a theme that Paul returns to several times in his other letters as well don't let anybody deceive you The Word of God is plain about some things. It's very clear about the essential things that you need to know. Don't let anyone come in and give you some fancy formula about how to live or how to do that if it's contradictory to the Word of God. Don't let empty words that sound good uh, deceive you. I don't know how many times I've watched as these famous... uh, Seminars are given and people flock by the thousands to go hear somebody tell them how to improve their life. And they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, ultimately even millions of dollars, to buy books and go to seminars and to get their life improved. Paul could save you all that time and all that money. Don't let anyone deceive you. If they're not teaching what's in the Word of God, you are going down a path that is, is a path of deception. Don't go down that path. So the first thing we want to know, Paul reminds us, is to walk in love. Walk in love. Now he changes the topic and we get kind of a a different picture here, starting in the last part of verse 8. 
Uh, well, first of all, seven, do not associate with them. That is, people who've continued to live like this and claim to be Christians. Uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So you've got walking in love, and now you've got walking in light. And the other thing in this treasure chest of Ephesians that I find here is a, is a lantern. And in this lantern is uh, a candle, which is a picture of light, of course. And now you watch to see if this thing works. And walking in light is always the picture of having the guidance of the Word of God clear, clearly available to us. Now, we use electric flashlights and things. I just like the lantern. It's kind of cool. Uh, the picture of walking in light. We read in the Psalms that your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Paul says, walk in love, but he also says, walk in light. Walk in light. It's the standard by which we live. Uh, he continues on in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Have you ever studied what pleases God? Have you ever used your concordance and look up this topic, the word please, and, and find that it's applied in a lot of different ways? But you begin to pull out things and you begin to see the mind of God and you discover what pleases God. Uh, there are any number of things. God is pleased by the aroma of the sacrifices of Israel. He is pleased to bless Israel. He is pleased to make Israel a people for himself. Solomon's request for wisdom pleased God. He was pleased to magnify his law, Isaiah tells us. He is well pleased with Jesus. You know that when Jesus was baptized, we heard the, the people there heard the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It pleases God to honor Jesus. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God to use the word of God and to use ordinary people to communicate the word of God. And it pleases God to use you to lead other people to Christ, to lead them to salvation, and their lives are changed for all of eternity. Um, what pleases God? Have you studied that? That's what Paul says. Learn what pleases God. Try to please him. We try to please all kinds of people. As children, we learn to please our parents. We try to please our parents. And, and that's one of our the, the child's natural desires. You go to school and you try to please your teachers. You get into college and you're still thinking about, well, what's this, how does, what makes this prof work? How does he think? How does she think? What pleases this teacher? so that I can respond in such a way that they will uh, be responsive to me. What pleases them? Of course, you go to work and you, you study your employer and you say, what pleases this guy? What pleases her? How do I do what pleases them? Because <clears throat> that's why I'm here. I was hired to do what pleases them. And Paul says, do you study to see what pleases God. Study it. Don't just run down the path of life and hope that you stumble onto something. Study it. Study what pleases God. He goes on now talking about this concept of light, the image of light. He said, verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Paul's talking about walking in light. 
walking in the understanding of the word of God, let your life impact the people around you. Paul says when you walk into a room, uh, you're exposing darkness. You're changing the nature. Did you ever consider that? In the first chapter of Ephesians, we find that you, you trust in Christ and the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. You walk into a room full of your friends and all of a sudden the light of God is present. If it hasn't been present before, suddenly the light of God is in that room. And you begin to see a response. Now, Paul uses a slightly different image of an aroma in 2 Corinthians, but he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other, uh, for others a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul is saying, when you walk into a room, you have an immediate impact just by your presence there. You don't have to announce yourself. You don't have to have, to have trumpets. You don't have to dress up funny. The fact that you are there and the Spirit of God is in you makes you have an impact on that room. You have an impact on the darkness that might be in the souls of some present there. And immediately thought processes begin in other people's minds when you walk in the room. To some people, they are reminded of life. If they know Christ already and another believer comes in the room, suddenly they begin to think about eternity and they're reminded again. It's just a reminder. It's just there. It's, it's below the surface, but it's there. Other people... And maybe you've seen this happen. Other people resent you for some reason. You don't even know them, but they resent you. You say, well, what did I ever do to them? The thing you did to them is you brought the light of Christ into their lives, and they don't want that. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want it to, to shine all around them. They would rather continue in the darkness, and, and they don't want your presence there. I remember hearing about years ago, uh, Billy Graham went golfing with someone. I can't remember who it was. Uh, but it was a famous person. Everybody would recognize his name. But he's golfing with Billy Graham. They came back from the from the uh, outing there, and they someone said, "So hey, what was it like to be golfing with Billy Graham?" He said, "Man, I just can't stand him shoving this God stuff down my throat all the time." And somebody else who went on the uh, around with him was in the foursome, was there, and he said, "You know, I was there, and Billy never mentioned God once. He never even talked about Jesus the whole time." But this other guy was, you know, it was just dumped on him because the presence of God in one life lights up the darkness. It reveals things that some people don't want to see, have seen. They don't want to see what's in their own heart. So Paul is reminding you of the powerful impact that you have on society. You are needed by society. Your very presence here has an effect on the world. And Jesus said it in another metaphor. He said, you're the salt of the earth said, you're the light of the world, you're also the salt of the earth. You are what makes things live. Don't ever underestimate yourself as a believer. You are necessary for the survival of our world. Don't apologize for that at any time. Well, then there's a third picture that Paul uses here. Uh, he's talking about walking in love, walking in light. And then he, he kind of brings in something else here. Um, verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so you should... Walk as wise. We kind of had a preview of what I'm going to use as an image here because in verse, uh, verse 14, it says, Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper. It always reminds, this is such a great thing that was given to me some years ago. This, uh, <laughs> this, this giant alarm clock, and that's what took off before. Awake, O sleeper. 
Don't go on in life as if tomorrow is the same as today. Don't just walk along. So, okay, it's another day. You know, I get to do uh, some stuff that I did yesterday and tomorrow will be the same. Awake. Wake up. Time is walking by, is ticking by, it's, it's going on, and it's not um, going backwards, it's going forward. And Paul tells us why, verses 15 and 16, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This world is no friend to grace, but it desperately needs what you have. It desperately needs to know about Jesus. Um, it seems to me that Satan's most effective strategy is to anesthetize God's people with entertainment. If he can get God's people, and actually those who are not believers, but God's people especially, if he can get God's people to believe that there is such a thing as a right to entertainment, they will fiercely defend that right. Just as a drug addict fiercely fights for his addiction. And all the while, people around us are going to hell. Society is carefully picking apart the very foundation which makes it safe to live in our world. Um, we have caved into this so many times and we have undermined our own well-being, making divorce to be such a very easy thing to accomplish, uh, making cohabitation an acceptable way of living in our life, uh, making homosexual marriage a right and saying, this is, this is okay, it's a good thing to do. And all the while we fret over the consequences, there are, there's a whole generation being raised that will pay the price of these thoughts. It's, we've seen it time and time again. I, I don't think I have this statistic exactly right, but something in the paper this week said something that up to 40% of the baby, babies being born are born out of wedlock. That's shocking. Almost half the babies born will not know a male and a female parent image. They won't have that privilege. They won't know it. And you wonder, why is society becoming fragmented? Why is it fraying at the edges? Why are there lost and lonely uh, children walking around and they're just being pushed from place to place? Why are they trying to raise themselves? Why are there young people who don't know what it's like to be a faithful husband or a faithful wife because they've not seen it? We're paying a huge price for this. And we need to wake up and we need to uh, stop sleeping and, and stop letting things go by us. There's a great price being paid. And, and the thing that's coming to the surface, one of these topics that's coming to the surface now is this matter of human trafficking. And several people from church have sent me links to see the information that's available. And even here in Chicago, runaway children are being sold into the sex trade and being made um, slaves, virtual slaves. And it's happening here in our city. It's not happening somewhere else. It's happening here. It's because we're walking away from the light of God. We're allowing society to fragment, and we're not saying anything about it, or we're not uh, standing loudly enough. We need to be consumed with more than doses of entertainment. We need to recognize that time is going by. And we need to live for more than that. You need to live for far more than entertainment. How will you make use of the time that God has given you? How will you, <clears throat> what kind of impact will you have on the lives of other people around you? Even one child that you rescue, that you allow to embrace the love of God in your life and your home, will make a huge difference. 
When the church has opportunities that, that are put in front of you. Tanya just stood in front of us and talked about Vacation Bible School coming up. Do you know what an opportunity that is to change the lives of some children? Just turn the whole direction of their lives in a new direction? In just a week of time, you could give your opportunity, you can give your time, and you can make a difference that lasts on into eternity. God says God's people ought to be about those things. Don't worry about your entertainment. Don't worry about that. Verse 17. Therefore, again, therefore, because the time is short, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Do you know what God wants to do? In the midst of, midst of one of these long passages in the Old Testament uh, about things that are happening, and, and here we find the men of Issachar, Issachar uh, who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. They sided with David. They understood the times. They looked around them and they said, this is the way God would have us to go. And we're going this direction. And if none of the rest of you come with us, it's okay. We're going. We're going. That's how God's people measure. Uh, we're not, we don't let the culture guide us. The culture is not the measure of, us, of our lives. The word of God is the measure. Now, verse 18, again, Paul comes back to reminders. Don't, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's drawing a contrast here. He's saying, drunkenness is a waste of your time. Being filled with the Spirit, controlled by two different objects, uh, either, either the Spirit of God on the one hand or the Spirit of alcohol on the other, uh, don't, don't be given into drunkenness. It's not the way you, you ought to live. And I would say that has to do with all forms of addiction, whether it is uh, a chemical addiction or psychological to television or to gambling or anything else like that. Um, you're giving your soul to another master. I remember coming to the place in my life where I had to decide, am I going to choose weed or Jesus? It was laid out to me very plainly, all alone in a room. I saw it. I could try to read the Bible or I could get stoned. Make your choice. You know, you can have steak. You can live on baby food the rest of your life. Make up your mind. What are you going to do? You make your choice and it, has, it affects the direction of your life. So Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God. Now, it's true that at the moment of salvation, you get all of the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. But your response to the Holy Spirit has to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is in your life, and, and you can respond or ignore the Holy Spirit. You can respond to him or ignore him, and that's what he's talking about here. The filling is revealed in how you speak to other Christians, how you speak to one another. Verse 19, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your, all your heart. Did you ever notice that when you're trying to teach children something, uh, if you teach, say, the ABCs and... They have a hard time learning A, B, C, D, E, F, D, G, but I know it. Uh, uh, and they have a hard time remembering that, but if you teach them a little tune, they can do the whole thing, and they'll do it to you, for you over and over and over again. There have been studies done about this, and, and the fact is that uh, music fixes things in our minds. It, it settles things. It helps us remember them. It helps us to helps these things to become a part of our life. Uh, so, someone wrote about this, and he said that... Uh, uh, a woman writing in an article in, in the New York Times, she points out that while we can't quite seem to remember the birthday of a loved one, we can't quite forget every word of the Gilligan Island, Gilligan's Island theme song. 
Why is that? Why is that? If you add a little bit of music to something, it's quite likely to be remembered. And that's how the brain is wired. And this woman writes, though scientists used to believe that short and long-term memories were stored in different parts of the brain, they've discovered that what really distinguishes the lasting from the transient is how strongly the memory is engraved in the brain. The deeper the memory, the more readily and robustly an assembly, an ensemble of the like-minded neurons will fire. This process of memory formation by neuronal entrainment, oh, this is good, you'll you'll remember these words, um, helps explain why some of life's offerings weasel in easily and then refuse to be spiked. Music, for example. The brain has a strong propensity to organize information and perception in patterns, and music plays into that inclination. That's written by a music professor in, uh, in Colorado State University. A simple melody with a simple rhythm and repetition can be a tremendous mnemonic device. It would be a virtually impossible task for young children to memorize a sequence of 26 separate letters if you just gave it to them as a string of information. But when the alphabet is sung to the tune of the ABC song with its four melodic phrases, preschoolers can learn it with ease. In other words, when you come to church and you sing on a Sunday morning, you are imprinting in your mind the thoughts of God. You're taking it with you, and you're making it possible for you to remember it. So Paul says, when you talk to one another, talk to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How do you do that? We don't go up to someone and start singing necessarily uh, to them. But together, when we sing together, we are together memorizing the thoughts of God, adapting the attitudes of God, worshiping God. And we're doing it together, and we're imprinting it on our thought processes. So when you see one another, you have thought the same thoughts together. Now, if you're one of these people who stands here with your hands in your pockets and you don't sing, think about it. You're missing a great opportunity to impress upon your mind something that will rescue you in a moment of need. It'll come back into your mind because you're making that connection. Well, Paul says that we ought to always be thankful, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and we're going to continue with that theme next week. Paul reminded us to walk worthy in chapter 4. And now we've seen what that walk looks like. It looks like love. It looks like light. It looks like wisdom. Anyone observing you walking down the street in your interactions with other people, would they recognize Christ in you right away? As you can recognize someone from a long distance just by the way they walk. It's kind of a summary of the thought of what Paul wants us to hold on to here.